we have all that we need for life and godliness, for every good work that you would call us to. So now as we dwell upon this truth, the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And everyone agreed and said, Amen. I, I could preach that hymn. The first verse that we sang is about convictions. Convictions about the sufficiency of Scripture. The next three verses are about case studies, practical situations where the Bible itself is sufficient. So just as an aside, you may want to study that hymn this afternoon. How firm a foundation, the, the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul. Um, I'm not sure that I have language adequate to capture just how thrilled I am about the prospect of this new preaching series in the life of our church. Um, in some ways, this series has been years and years in the making. And uniquely this past year uh, in particular. If my vocabulary at any point does fail to assist me this morning in expressing my enthusiasm for this topic, then may my raw passion affect you, okay? This series is entitled Competent to Counsel, a Biblical Vision for Soul Care in the Life of the Local Church. And so that we make no mistake about what I mean when I use the words counsel or soul care, allow me to borrow uh, an extended quote and an image within it from uh, an author by the name of David Paulison. Uh, this, I believe, beautifully communicates the burden and the central aims of this sermon series. The quote in its longer form is in your study guide, your community group study guide, and you're going to have a chance to roll up your sleeves and dissect it this week. So at this point, just listen and reflect on what you're hearing. David Pallison writes, What do you see when you look at your Bible? Do you see a book crammed with relevance? Do you see a book out of which God bursts when he speaks to the matters of daily life? Is your Bible packed with application to the real problems of real people in the real world? Inexhaustible, immediate, diverse, flexible. Or is the Bible relatively thin when addressing these human struggles? Allison continues, I see two sorts of contemporary Bible-believing evangelical Protestants. One sort has a Bible crammed with relevance to human life. The other sort has a Bible of modest utility. Think of it this way. People with a relatively thin Bible have a vision defect. Their Bible is seen as a child's eight-key tin toy piano. Can you picture it? Those eight white keys may be of 
central importance in music theory, key of C major, beginning with middle C, sounds the basic do, re, mi after all. They'll do for Sunday school songs, but you can't play much of depth or interest. No sonatas, no fugues, no concertos. You can't sound the nuances and variations in minor keys of life, and no mature pianist would bother plunking around on an eight-key tin toy piano. There are more flexible instruments around. Pallison concludes, but for the other sort of Bible believer, the Bible is a grand piano. In fact, it's a grand piano plus the rest of the orchestra. It sounds all the notes, all the tones, all the rhythms, all the keys, all the special effects, all the nuances. That's the vision that biblical counselors have of the Bible. It's crammed. Can you picture that? This morning, my goal is to lay out a case for the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul. Now, when I say that, you need to know how deep down we're talking here. Your life and my life and the lives of those that we know and love, live with, work among, play with, and so on, our lives are anything but simple. Our sufferings and sins are incredibly complex. From grief to depression to anxiety to addiction to gender confusion to anger to interpersonal conflict to the mess we make of our marriages and the pains that we both inflict and experience in parenting and in childhood. Not to mention the fact that these are the issues that often lay at the roots of national and global epidemics like gun violence and sex trafficking and terrorist movements. Life outside the Garden of Eden, much of the time, has been a kaleidoscope of excruciating suffering and sin. So I'm not seeking to minimize the problem. What I'm saying, and let me say it with absolute crystal clarity, is that the Bible and the message of the gospel are enough. They are enough. They are sufficient. Jesus Christ and his life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, <clears throat> and soon return <clears throat> is enough. In other words, the Bible isn't a child's eight-key tin toy piano. It's a grand piano. Now, many of us know this. I'm not telling you anything you didn't come in with convictions about. You don't believe, many of you, that the Bible and the message of the gospel are insufficient for your sufferings and sins. You don't. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that when we are sitting in front of our Bibles, we are indeed sitting before a $50,000 Steinway. We know that. However, if you put me in front of an instrument like that, or an instrument like that, 
Just don't expect to hear Mozart right away, okay? Just because I have convictions about Scripture's sufficiency for the care of souls doesn't necessarily mean I have competency in playing the music of the gospel into the lives of hurting and sinning and suffering people, right? So many of us, if not most of us in this room, don't have a vision defect at all. We have a skill defect. I'm going to quote Pallison again. He addresses this topic. Vision defects aren't the only sort of defect, of course. There are also skill defects. We don't always do the best job of playing the music. We all have skill defects. Someone who sees the grand piano, no vision defect, may only know how to play chopsticks. A novice on the violin squawks. A novice on the trumpet blats. On the drums, he thumps monotonously. Such failings make it hard for bystanders to catch the vision. But they do not invalidate the vision. Skill defects can be remedied. There is a full orchestra. So let's grow up out of our failings and learn how to play. Skill defects are easier to remedy than vision defects. Did you know that? They are. They are. But God can overcome both defects to the praise of his glory. Pallison continues with this challenge, or concludes with this challenge. Is your Bible crammed, but your skills limited? A seeing child may stumble at first, but eventually he or she will learn to skip and even run under the guidance of the Father. Or is your Bible relatively thin? A blind child can never walk without halting, but the Father can open eyes. End quote. Okay. Here at Mount Evangelical Free Church, your pastors and your elders and a growing body of leaders in this church have a vision. And part of that vision is that we as a congregation would become increasingly rich and wise in the care and cure of souls. We believe that God desires to make our church a harbor a lighthouse, a beacon of hope in the lives of sufferers and sinners throughout the city of Mound, in the West Tonka area, and in time, the broader West Metro. And we are convinced that this season, by God's grace, by God's grace, we're going to become equipped. We are going to become equipped at the level of our convictions and our competencies to counsel, to counsel ourselves, to counsel one another, and to counsel those outside the web of relationships of our church, but within our own sphere of influence. We will counsel from the pages of Holy Scripture that lead us one place to the person of Jesus Christ, who himself is the wonderful counselor. Over the next seven Sundays, we're going to sharpen our counseling convictions. And then beginning in the Lenten season, we're going to focus on our counseling competencies. Finally, in the weeks following Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about where we head from here, some practical steps at the individual level, at the community group level, and then finally at the end of April to the church-wide level. Uh, preaching calendars have been emailed to you probably 
but if you didn't get one, they're available in Fellowship Hall. They're also downstairs on the information table. Please take a calendar and, and pray over it. As I said, the goal for this morning is to make a case for the sufficiency of Scripture for the care for the soul. And in the time that remains, I want to invite you, if you haven't done so already, to open the Bible to the book of Psalms, Psalm 19 in particular. I'd like to use one of the red Bibles. As mentioned, uh, the text is found on page 456, 456 in the red Bibles. When the topic of biblical counseling arises, an honest question inevitably, an honest question inevitably follows regarding the value of what you might call extra-biblical counseling. That is, wisdom not gleaned from the Word of God, but rather from the world of God, okay? Is there value in such an endeavor? And I want to get at that answer First of all, by telling you to come to Sunday school next week. We had a really rich discussion this morning. We're going to be talking through that in detail. 9 a.m. hour right downstairs. However, Psalm 19 also addresses it. I want to get at that answer by looking at Psalm 19 because it's here in Psalm 19 when I, I would not have guessed this. I mean, one of the most fascinating juxtapositions in all of the Bible takes place. Psalm 19 flies an unapologetic banner for the sufficiency of Scripture for all of our woes and all of our needs. However, it doesn't start there. Psalm 19 begins with a glorious affirmation of the appropriate role of what we might call general revelation. For the non-seminarians among us, and there still are some of those left, what can be known just by looking at stuff? Looking at creation, watching yourself behave, watching other people behave. General revelation. So here's how I'll put it in view of the claim of Psalm 19 as well as the overarching theme of this preaching series. Here's the big idea today. God's world lets us observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. God's world lets us observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. What is the place of general revelation? What is the role of the word of God, though, excuse me, the world of God, the world of God in coming to know the souls of human beings? That would be who we are, where we've come from, what in the world's wrong with us, and where are we going? Are there causes or cures that we might be able to cast about for in God's world? And the honest answer is, well, there are some things. The world of God has a role, albeit a, a modest role, a rather chastened role, actually. The reason for this is that the world around us, including the observation of us, doesn't exist to tell us about us. The world around us does not exist primarily to teach us about ourselves, but rather it exists to teach us about our God. That is what the first six verses of Psalm 19 are about. Here's a way to summarize point one. Creation's mission is to provide overwhelming evidence of the magnificence of her creator. That's creation's mission. 
Creation's mission is to provide overwhelming evidence of the magnificence of her creator. Let's listen now again to the word of God, Psalm 19, first six verses. This is the word of God speaking about the main function, the primary role of the word of God, the world of God, rather, the world of God. To the choir master, it says, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling, the heavens declare, that's the NIV coming through, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing that is hidden from its heat. In these six verses, we see God unveiled and on display. The psalmist tells us that God is revealed to us both in the skies and in the sun. In fact, I I preached this about eight years ago. I've hardly changed anything from what I would have said eight years ago. It's the same today. God made the skies to preach to us his weightiness, his glory, and his wisdom. God made the sun to speak to us about his pleasure. That's the kind of God he is. He's like a groom on his way to his wedding day. And he made the sun to express his pervasiveness, his all-everywhereness. Now notice, the psalmist will make a move to speak to us about our souls. He will. But he does that in verse 7. He moves from skies to sun to souls. But he makes a category jump when he does it. You notice that? The psalmist addresses the topic of our souls but he does not do so within the scope of general revelation. Why? It's very simple. The world of God does not exist primarily to teach us about us, but about him. Creation's mission is to provide overwhelming evidence of the magnificence of her creator. Is there wisdom that can be gleaned about the human soul purely by observing human behavior? In the world of God, the answer is yes. We can observe our conditions. And this is what much of the world of the secular psychologies do. Observations relating to what our problems are, when they happen, how they happen, even the with whom of our problems. But the world of God cannot address the most basic and therefore the most important aspect of all, and that would be why we do what we do. And if our observations, apart from the word of God, fail to address the why, the the causes of our problems, they will inevitably stumble in offering the cures for our problems. Inevitably. We can observe the conditions of our soul's problems by using the world of God. We can even 
temporarily alleviate some of our soul's symptoms by using the world of God. But we cannot get down to the roots of our woe merely by wielding God's world. To participate in the care and cure of souls, we must become competent in wielding God's word. God's world lets us observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. So let's not press general revelation into a service it was never designed to perform. Creation's mission is to provide overwhelming evidence of the magnificence of her creator. The second point today, and really the main thrust of the entire sermon series, not to mention the back half of Psalm 19. Point two. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource for the care of the soul. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource, excuse me, for the soul care of the creature. The soul care of the creature. Say that one more time. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource for the soul care of the creature. Follow along with me, and I'll read the back half of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, it would be tempting to keep you here the rest of the day unfolding the implications of verses 7 to 11. Um, But for the purposes of this morning that we have, I want to allow ourselves to dwell on verse 7. Verse 7 outlines two remarkable truths about the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul that will set us on the trajectory that we want for the next season. Let's take each of them in turn. The first half of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord, that phrase there, David is speaking of Scripture as he knew it as a whole. He's talking about the written instruction of the God of Israel, the Word of God. And he calls this word perfect. The footnote in the ESV says blameless, It's really a summary attribute of Holy Scripture. With this word perfect, David's intending to cover the waterfront with this word. 
Scripture, the law of the Lord, is perfect. It's blameless. It's without lack. It's not missing anything. It's sufficient. Sufficient for what? That's what God's Word is, but what can it do? Well, now we move on to the second line in verse 7. It gets a line all to itself in the ESV poetry. Reviving the soul. The word soul in this case is being used to describe the immaterial part of us. Our thoughts, our emotions, our wills, our desires, our affections, our passions. The very drives of every one of our lives. And what verse 7 assumes here is that our souls have a tendency to wind down. And if left to themselves to drift and to die of their own devices. Now, please don't miss this because verse 7 is also offering a prescription to the problems that American people spend billions and billions of dollars every year to alleviate. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's sufficient. It's enough. It's complete. It's lacking nothing. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You say, well, how could biblical psychology do that? And I'll grant you that secular psychology and even the world of prescription medication struggles. We were watching something on Hulu last night, and we saw a repeated... um, commercial for a depression medication. And one of the things it warned of was one of the effects of the depression medication was depression. Okay? I'm just saying the playing field is level here. Give me a chance to show you what God's word can do. They're looking for answers. They don't have them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What's biblical psychology got to do? How could pages, really, How could pages fundamentally care for and cure my sin-sick soul? And the answer to that, of course, is that every one of these pages leads us to a person. Turn in your Bibles one page over to Psalm 23, 23rd Psalm. Familiar words to many of us. Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's the very next line. He restores my soul. Now, the word for restores here in Psalm 23, 2 is the word for revives in Psalm 19, 7. Same Hebrew word, restores, revives. They're synonyms. And who does this soul care? The Lord, the shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. The reason why biblical psychology, the faith's psychology, is the right one is because we don't just counsel a theory or techniques or therapies. We counsel a person. Crucified, yes. Died, very much so. And very much alive. And risen today and reigning, and soon to return. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the practical question is, do you have those convictions? Do you see the grand piano and the conductor of the orchestra, the Lord Jesus? Second half of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Notice that biblical, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, saturated counseling doesn't just restore us, it also equips us. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word for sure here means trustworthy. It means true in principle. One author put it this week in one of the commentaries, verifiable in situations of life. Amen. Uh, This is one of the most spectacular things about the Bible. It names the world. And it fits. Trustworthy. It describes reality very, very well. Scripture is road-tested and extraordinarily practical. In fact, it's so usable that even the most inexperienced among us can use it with profit. Isn't this what this says? Even the simple among us can become wise from studying it. The word for simple here doesn't refer to a simple ton. That's not talking about a fool so much. Rather, it's the idea of somebody who's inexperienced. Somebody who is green and in many ways untested. Perhaps this is you when you begin to consider the prospect of counseling another person about their issues from the pages of Holy Scripture, playing the music of the gospel for another person who stands in need of your counsel. Especially if this is you, do you see what verse 7 is saying? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I could keep you here a lot longer, giving you examples of people who have made me wise by their simple use of of Scripture in my life. And look, maybe you're just a kid. Maybe you're just a teenager. Perhaps you only came to know Christ six months ago. Maybe you've been a believer for 40 years and you have never been having thoughts like you're having this morning about the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul, and you feel a little behind. Anybody feel behind the power curve this morning? If your nose is in this book, you can, you can become a wise person. You can become a master swordsman, a skillful soul surgeon. God loves to use weak, untested, seemingly insignificant people. I once read that if you think you are too small to be effective, then you have never been in bed with a mosquito. Right? Now, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How sufficient is Scripture for counseling? 2 Peter 1.3 says that God's word is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
2 Timothy 3.17 says that the Bible is given that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource for the soul care of the creature, both at the level of convictions and increasing competencies. God's world lets us observe the condition of our souls. But only God's word can offer us a cure for our souls. Creation's mission is to provide overwhelming evidence of the magnificence of her creator. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource for the soul care of the creature. This week, our focus is the sufficiency of Scripture in the care for the soul. If you are part of the community group or uh, haven't been but would like to be, this is a great time to jump in. It's the beginning of a new sermon series, and the groups are offered these study questions that are included in your uh, sermon notes, and I encourage you to take a look at that, maybe on your own, maybe with family members or perhaps in a group. The sufficiency of Scripture this week. Next week, we're going to spin this topic around 180 degrees and talk about it from the other side, which is the issue of the insufficiency of worldly wisdom for the care of the soul. We've hinted at it a little bit here, but we'll go into more detail next week as we open up Colossians chapter 2. But let's hold it up for here, right here, right now, and let's pray. Father in heaven, I... I pray for two kinds of people, vision defects and skill defects. Lord, there may be those among us who came in this morning with a vision that the scripture is nothing more than a child's plaything, weak, plastic, not very sophisticated. And I pray, Father, that if the blinders haven't come away, that you might do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And not only the blinders about the Bible and its pages, but the one to whom the pages point, to the Lord Jesus, the wonderful counselor who lived and suffered and died and was raised in the third day for such people. I pray, Father, you grant the gifts of repentance and faith, cause people to cross the line from unbelief to belief, not just about the Bible, but about Jesus, whose view of the Bible is spectacularly high. <laughs> and I pray too, Father, for those who probably make up the uh, majority, or at least a lot of people in this congregation, we don't have a vision defect, but we could really use your help becoming better players of just the scales, some simple songs that would bring some help and wisdom and nuanced care to those that we love. And then, Father, help us to look to those in the congregation who've been playing the music for a little while, where we could learn more and more and dig deeper and deeper than we ever have into the riches of Holy Scripture. And, Father, create not, not just one or two skilled players, but create an entire orchestra, an entire congregation filled with people who are becoming increasingly convinced of what Paul said in Romans 15, 14 so many years ago, you are able to instruct one another. You are competent to counsel one another. In Jesus' name, amen.